This morning's reading is found on page 1219 in the Church Bibles. It's coming from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. 1 Peter 3, 8 through 12, page 1219. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate, and be humble. Do not repay evil with evil, nor insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Morning, everybody. In verse 10 of what we just read... It's a quote from Psalm 34, and it says, Whoever would love life and see good days, dot, dot, dot. And surely that's all of us, living and loving the good life. Who wouldn't want that? Who would possibly ever say no to something like that? Of course, all of us define the good life differently, and we each chase the good life in a different sort of way. I was talking to someone earlier this week who isn't a Christian yet, and I confessed to this person that, for me, the good life, or my definition of the good life, used to be the praise and applause of other people, Um, whether that was for academic achievement, for sporting achievement, or for whatever. I just wanted applause. Um, For this person that I was speaking to, their definition of the good life was different. For them, it it was more about providing for their family, more about kind of a a lifestyle of of wealth and maybe of fame that would mean that their family would never lack anything. That would be the good life for them. And I wonder what your definition of a good life would be. It's worth thinking about. But wouldn't it be good to know what God's definition of the good life is? I mean, after all, he's the one who made us. He knows what... uh, what we're for. He's a loving father who wants the best for his children. So I think it'd be really interesting if we could hear what God thinks the good life is about, especially if he shows us how to get it. So the key to understanding this paragraph here, where I think we find the answer, is the second half of verse 9. If we can understand the second half of verse 9, I think we can understand the whole paragraph. It says, To this you were called, so that you might inherit a blessing. 
To this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. If we can grasp what this means, we'll understand the whole paragraph and we might find ourselves on the path to loving life and seeing good days. So we'll, we'll split the sentence in two and we'll start by taking the first bit. To this you were called. Firstly, who's the you in that phrase? Well, back in chapter 2, verse 11, Peter addressed his dear friends. You, you can see that if you're there in your Bibles in 2.11. Dear friends, foreigners and exiles living among the pagans or the peoples. These were marginalized Christians uh, living in uh, modern-day Turkey. And uh, as you know, over the past few weeks, they, um, they were oppressed. Um, Peter's been kind of speaking to all of them, but then he moves to specific groups among the church, uh, subjects under the emperor, slaves, wives, and husbands. But now, in this paragraph, he turns in verse, uh, verse 8 and says, finally, all of you. Nice to have a finally halfway through the letter. Uh, but finally, in this section, all of you. He's addressing not a specific group, but the whole church. So the you in this sentence refers to all Christians. This is a call to people who are already following Jesus. If you wouldn't describe yourself that way just yet, then this isn't the first thing God wants to say to you. This verse isn't the first thing that God wants you to hear. God's call for you isn't to live a certain way, but rather to come to Jesus. God's call to you is to turn to Jesus in repentance and faith. It's not about turning over a new leaf. It's about turning to Jesus. But um, as I do address kind of the Christians in the room this morning, do listen in, because hearing what God's call to Christians is will help you count the cost of whether you want to become one. So we know what the you refers to, but what is the this? What is the this in that sentence? To this you were called. What is God calling you, Christian, to today, tomorrow, this week? It refers back to six instructions given in verses 8 to 9. I don't want to push this too hard, but as we consider these six instructions, I think we can helpfully think of them in three categories. God's call on our minds, God's call on our hearts, and God's call on our actions. So firstly, God's call on our minds is to be like-minded and humble. Those are two of the words there in verse 8. God's call on our minds is to be like-minded and humble. An orchestra sounds beautiful when everyone is playing in harmony. There may be great diversity among the orchestra. They may all come from different backgrounds. They may be different genders, different ages. They'll certainly have different choices of instruments. Um, two members of the orchestra sitting next to each other may be completely different. There may be one person who's a young woman in her 20s with piercings, tattoos, and pink hair. 
The other next to her is an older gentleman with a really crisp white shirt and a, a really precise side parting. There is great diversity in this orchestra, but they all remain in harmony because they follow the conductor. And that's what it means for the church to be like-minded. We can't let our differences cause division. Being like-minded isn't about coming together with people who are exactly like you. Um, I think if you leave church this morning, having, having only spoken to people who are from the same background and the same generation as you, there's probably something that's not quite right. We are like-minded, not because we're similar, but because we follow Jesus. We are like-minded when we share this one most important factor in our lives. We all follow Christ. As Andrew, um, one, sorry, there are so many Andrews on stage today. As Andrew McKenna, let's refer to him as Big Mac. As Big Mac said earlier, <laughs> November 27th is, is a great opportunity to demonstrate our like-mindedness as a church. Uh, we're going to meet here at 9.30 a.m., going to have a bit of coffee, and then deliver almost 3,500 leaflets to the people of Banstead and beyond. Why? Because we're like-minded. We're all in harmony. We are all of one mind. We want the people of Banstead and beyond to hear about Jesus this Christmas. So come and join in with us. I'd also say that's a good opportunity to answer God's second call on our minds and be humble. Being humble, it's not about thinking less of yourself. It's about thinking of yourself less. It's not about low self-esteem. Humility doesn't say, oh, I won't come on November 27th because I don't have much to offer. Humility says, no, I will come and I will serve because my brothers and sisters need me. This is God's call on our minds. Secondly, God's call on our hearts is to be sympathetic and compassionate. There are two root words uh, in the Greek that make up the, uh, the word sympathy. Together, suffer. Together, suffer. Um, although, in fact, this word can also refer to positive experiences as well. God calls us to a kind of understanding and fellow feeling that enters into the hearts and the experiences of others. This type of sympathy looks deeply, sorry for picking on you, deeply into the eye of a brother or sister and feels what they feel. We are called to rejoice with those who rejoice. We are called to weep with those who weep and to be compassionate Again, that's one of the words in verse 8. It's closely related as well. Literally, this word describes healthy intestines. Do you have healthy intestines this morning? Um, for this, uh, the culture that Peter was writing into, the emotions were rooted in the bowels. If you're perhaps familiar with the old King James Version, you might have heard the phrase, bowels of mercy, which sounds kind of funny, but really, is it? Is it any different from the way we speak of the heart? 
Uh, for us, um, the emotions are rooted in the heart. We speak of a soft-hearted person, a tender-hearted person. This is what it is to be compassionate. And I'm often struck by Jesus' example here. How did he respond when he saw a crowd of people following him? Um, even if he was tired, even if he was weary, uh, even if he'd been uh, even trying to get away from them for a bit. If, uh, if we put ourselves in de- Jesus' shoes in that scenario, I know how we'd respond. Oh no, they found me. Won't they give me a moment's rest? But Jesus saw the crowds and had compassion on them. His heart went out to them. This is God's call on our hearts to be sympathetic and compassionate. Now, I've been listening to a kid's Christian music group called Slugs and Bugs. They write really excellent songs. And in one of their albums, there's a character called Robort, who is a robot. And he uh, comes along and he corrects the lyrics to a previous song. The previous song was called Be Kind and Compassionate. But his corrected version was be cold and mathematical. And uh, maybe there are a few robots here uh, this morning, I don't know. Um, He does have a point. It's safer to keep people at a distance, isn't it? It's safer if we keep our affections under tight control. It allows us to be more efficient with our work if we only focus on our own problems. But Christians are called to be heart people. We're called to be heart people people. Uh, Regardless of whether this comes naturally to you, remember this is addressed to all of you. So let's take a risk and ask if someone's really okay. Let's take a risk and prioritize people even over busyness, even if it makes us less efficient with all the jobs we've got to do. God's call on our hearts is to be sympathetic and compassionate. And uh, the third thing here, God's call on our actions is to love one another and bless evildoers. The love mentioned in verse 8 is a brotherly, sisterly love. This love, it, it, it is related. It encapsulates the kind of heart attitude that comes from sympathy and compassion, but it also adds action into the mix too. This love recognizes that as Christians, we are all part of one family. We've been adopted by God. And then our behavior is shaped by that. Imagine two rooms. In the first room, uh, you enter and it's full of not strangers, but kind of vague acquaintances. Um, What's her name from, you know, that one time? How are you going to greet people in that room? How are you going to respond if someone in that room needs a favour? Well, you might be friendly, but you probably won't invite them around for dinner. You might um, help if it's convenient, but you probably won't move heaven and earth for those people. How about the second room? Uh, this This isn't the experience of everyone, I acknowledge. But in this second room... It's full of your family and friends. 
And the way you enter that room is going to be completely different, isn't it? When you greet people, you're not just going to be friendly. You're going to be genuinely happy. There are going to be big smiles, warm embraces, genuine warmth. And when someone in that room has a problem, you're going to, you're going to move heaven and earth, even if it's not convenient to serve that person. Wouldn't it be a tragedy if walking into this room was more like the first than the second? Wouldn't it be such a shame if we treated one another as vague acquaintances? What's her name? What's his name from that place I just go to once a week? No, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. So let's treat one another with the love, the greetings, the service that that involves. And that the second call on our actions is to bless evildoers. Let me read the first half of verse 9. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. As Christians, um, we could hypothetically live on one of three levels. We could return evil for good, which is the devil's work. We could return good for good and evil for evil, and that's just normal human work. Or we can return good for evil, and that is God's work. Of course, we're still here following chapter 2, Jesus' example. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. We are called to bless those who insult us, those who accuse us. To bless here, um, it's where we get the word eulogy. It means to speak well of someone, to speak well of someone who insults you. And this links it to the Psalm 34 quote in verses 10 to 12. Um, speaks of keeping your tongue from evil, your lips from deceitful speech, um, seeking peace and pursuing it. So, so when people come at you with evil words, when people come at you with deceit, um, spreading slander and lies about you, when people come at you with words of conflict, we respond with words of peace. We respond with uh, speaking well of those very people who would speak poorly of us. That is what it is to bless others. Now, this call on our minds, on our hearts, on our actions, it may seem impossible. But when God calls, he also equips. And that is good news Remember also in chapter 2, speaking of Jesus, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. When Jesus, the suffering servant, carried away our sins, he released us from the penalty and the power of sin. His death makes a new life of this sort of righteousness possible and his spirit strengthens us so that we can answer God's call on our minds, hearts, 
and actions. So let's do it. Now, the second uh, half of the sentence. So that you may inherit a blessing. We should live out verses 8 and 9, because if we do, we will be blessed. That's why Psalm 34 is here. It, It draws the connection between living in obedience and receiving a blessing. This needs teasing out. What is the blessing that we gain when we live according to verses 8 and 9? I want to begin by defining what the blessing isn't. The blessing here isn't salvation. Remember that Peter, as I've already said, is speaking to people who are already Christians, who are already following Jesus. If we flick back to chapter 1 of First Peter, we read in verses 3 to 5, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. The inheritance in chapter one is the salvation of our souls, delivered from the sufferings of this world, delivered delivered from the judgment that our sins deserve. Many of you may have been watching a bit of rugby over the last couple of weeks. Obviously, it's a fairly violent game, but um, sometimes someone tries to get away with something that's really nasty, a swinging arm at someone's head when they're already on the floor, uh, sprinting into a a head-on-head collision. Neither play was spotted by the ref, so it seemed like both players had gotten away with it, but they hadn't. The television match official was watching and saw everything. Uh, Each uh, nasty incident was displayed. Every misdemeanor was noted in slow motion for all to see from every single angle, ensuring that justice would be done. And that is what we face. That is what we face, even for those things that we think we've gotten away with. But in chapter one, we see that there is salvation. There is deliverance for your soul. And this is important. That isn't gained by being like-minded, compassionate, um, sympathetic, and blessing evildoers. That is not the way to gain the chapter one inheritance. No, in chapter one, This ultimate blessing, it's given because of mercy. Do you see that? It's given because of mercy in verse 3. It's a gift. Salvation is a gift. So all you have to do is ask. Uh, These um, words that uh, Andrew G. read at the start from Psalm 34, they can be your story too. 
this poor man called, and the Lord answered him and delivered him from all his troubles. All the evidence may be stacked against you, repeated and displayed from every angle in slow motion, but Jesus has died so that judgment is satisfied and mercy prevails. Turn from sin and turn to Jesus. Ask, and this salvation is yours. But the blessing offered in chapter 3 isn't salvation. So what is it? Well, uh, let's see what we know, what we can find out here. This is a blessing in suffering. Wealth, success, fame, that would all be pretty nice, wouldn't it? But that doesn't seem to fit with uh, this letter's description of what it is to be a Christian. To be a Christian in this letter seems to be um, suffering, being a suffering pilgrim, following a suffering saviour. So this, this is a blessing that can be enjoyed in the middle of suffering. Uh, you can see in verse 14 of chapter 3. But even if you should suffer what is right, you are blessed. So this is a blessing in suffering. This is also a blessing in the present. Having just read uh, verse 14, that spoke of being blessed now. And indeed, the same is true in chapter 4, verse 14. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ... You are blessed, present tense. This is a blessing in the present. And this is a blessing, I think here's the key, in conversation. We've noticed over the past few weeks that these churches, their suffering was more about words than it was about lions. Um, They were marginalised and excluded through the accusations, the insults that were often on the lips of governors, masters and unbelieving spouses. And then we also saw the emphasis of words in Christ's suffering example as well. Insults hurled at him, yet he offered no threats and no deceit was found in his mouth. Also in the righteous behaviour God calls us to. Words were a big deal there as well. We respond to those who insult us in the first half of verse 9 by blessing, eulogising, speaking well of those people. And this is what God's blessing on us means here too. We are motivated to speak well of others and to live righteously, because in response, God will speak well of us. And this also fits with what was said to um, poor suffering slaves in chapter 2. God, uh, Peter spoke of how it is commendable before God to suffer for doing good. The blessing here is God commending us. God speaking well of us, God praising us when we do what is right. He is always our Father in Christ, but when we walk in obedience, he is so delighted that he makes his pleasure known. 
and he speaks well of his children. He blesses us, praises us, commends us. So this is the blessing that is offered. This is the motivation for us to live in accordance with verses 8 to 9. I said at the start that for me, my definition of the good life used to be the praise and applause of others. That would be the motivation between every, uh, behind every action I did. Wanting the crowd to stand and cheer when I was at a sports day or athletic event. Wanting um, teachers to give me a glowing report in school. That was the good life. But I tell you from experience, in case you relate to that, it does not work. That is not the good life. Taken to its extreme, living for the praise of others is a crushing burden that no one, certainly not me, could possibly bear. It leads to a a terrible pressure to achieve, a terrible pressure to impress. And that way of thinking nearly broke me. How much better is the good life described in these verses? How much better to live under the constant smile of a God who is pleased with you in Christ? And how much more motivating is it to know that you can live with God's applause, God speaking well of you, God noticing when you are living righteously, even when nobody else does? We can please our Father in heaven, and he will bless us. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you first and foremost for that inheritance which can never perish, spoil, or fade. Thank you that our eternal salvation is given by mercy. And thank you that all of us who ask, anyone who asks for the first time, even this morning, can receive that. Father, we pray for for all of us that are already following Jesus. Please help us to live lives full of uh, being like-minded, sympathetic, loving one another, compassion and humility, repaying evil with blessing. And Lord, we pray that you would motivate us, not by the praise of others, but by hearing your righteous commendation, your blessing us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to uh, sing.